0: Great to see all of you here in person at Harvard campus. Those of you joining us online, welcome, everyone. Um, My job today is to begin a brand new series, as the lady said, that will last for the next couple of months. So let me have you turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to the book of Nehemiah, which is in the Old Testament, Nehemiah chapter one. And you can uh, take out your message notes as well. I hope you use these because I don't normally like making them and... uh, (laughs) I make them for you. Okay, so the Bible, guys, the Bible encourages us to study and remember our leaders. Uh, Here's a passage that articulates this. We're just going to pull from the New Testament. Remember your leaders, the Bible says, those who spoke to you the word of God and then consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their, their faith. The leader, Nehemiah, is very imitatable. Let us then consider the outcome of his way of life and model ourselves as what we're studying, what he showed us. Actually, he's one of the people in the scriptures that I admire so deeply. Uh, the way he navigates complexity, I aspire to be like him. He uses tact and strategy and grace. He's, he's a collaborative leader. His integrity really shines forth. He's both logical, anybody logical? And he's both spiritual which a lot of times those things don't necessarily go together but in the bible they do it's beautiful his integrity uh, and his humility provided an example worthy of following he was uh, a hard worker he never used his position for personal gain he he had a heart to serve and to so he had a heart of faith and he was fearless the way he uh, worshiped god so he wasn't perfect and we're going to see that there's a couple times he kind of blows his stack but uh, there is no one that's perfect. There's no perfect leader except one. Who's our perfect leader? Jesus. So Nehemiah then provides us under the shepherding of Jesus. He provides us with a powerful example of how God will, will use a person who's willing to go, willing to be sent, willing to care, willing to step out of their comfort zone to solve tough problems and bless others along the way. So let's let's meet him now. And I'm going to just start reading. You can follow along with me, and I'll just go a few verses. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning It's early winter in the city of Susa, located in what is now southwestern Iran. This is one of the capital cities of the Persian Empire. It's the 20th year. 20th year of what? Uh, meaning the 20th year of the reign of the current emperor. His name is Artaxerxes Longamanus. Artaxerxes Longamanus was the son of Xerxes, Esther's husband in the book of Esther, Artaxerxes is the same emperor in the book of Ezra, and so this is a really cool section of our Bibles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, where there's lots of world history, there's lots of intertwining narratives here. They're not necessarily, by the way, in chronological order. Um, we don't necessarily get that in our Bibles, but we do see what God is doing in this period of history here uh, in, in a nice way. We have lots of material. Now, I wanna give you some key phrases or words to fill in on your notes to help you understand who the man that we just met, who Nehemiah was. And I think these things, if you carry them through the series, are gonna be helpful to you. You'll refer back to them uh, as we study. You can keep them in mind. So your first fill-in, we see that Nehemiah was a Jewish exile. A Jewish exile. That word is in here. The exiles. Um, Nehemiah isn't Persian, and he's not Babylonian. He's Jewish, and he's in exile. And we're going to talk about more on that in a moment. But Susa, this town, is not his homeland. It's not where his people are from. This isn't his culture. Uh, his 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 parents spoke a different language than what he speaks at work. He's in Persia, but he's not of Persia. He's in exile. Now, this, of course, is a biblical theme in the Old Testament, but it's also a theme in the New Testament. The New Testament writers draw from this concept of being in a foreign land, of being not in your place of home, like you're, you're not in your, your mother country. Uh, and in the, in the New Testament, it's not so much as a physical exile, but it's spiritual exiles. And as Christians, as believers, as Christ followers, we're told that wherever we live physically, that's not your real home. Uh, as proud of you may be as your heritage. I'm Swiss. I'm super proud of that. You all know. But that's not, that's secondary. That's because we're in exile. We're strangers because heaven is our true home. And one day we will, we will be, um, we will be there. So Nehemiah, he was a Jewish exile. You can find, uh, this theme, by the way, in 1st Peter, uh, of exiles and strangers. Now he was also born in captivity. Most likely he had never been to Jerusalem. He had never seen Jerusalem. He had never been to Israel. He had spent the whole of his life in captivity, in Babylon, in Persia. He had, he had, uh, he had never seen it. And, and yet he asks how it's going there. How is Jerusalem? How's everybody faring? And, and how's the city? And I like this about him because he's a man who walks by faith and not by sight. This is a feature of godly leaders, a character attribute that is worthy of imitation. We don't have to see something to believe in it or to care about it. We don't have to see something with our eyes or or have other physical sense data in order to build our life on. You don't, you'd actually don't want to operate strictly this way as a Christian because you can't. By the way, uh, you can't serve God. Our connection to the Lord is not based on seeing him physically because God is invisible. We walk by faith. We, we don't walk by sight. And this is the kind of guy that Nehemiah was. He was also, we read, I'm going to just uh, uh, cheat ahead just a little bit here. Verse 11, he's a cup bearer. A cup bearer is his job. That's your next fill-in. Now, we don't have this job today. This is a, more of an ancient phenomenon. And a cupbearer was in charge of tasting all of the food and the wine or the beverages of the emperor they served. This was a position of prestige and power. This was a position uh, where, well, basically, if you're a cupbearer, you're by the king's side all day long. Uh, Because think about it, the king is just chilling, he's doing his job, and he gets thirsty, and Somebody's got to be there when he gets thirsty, or if he gets hungry and he wants to nibble on a snack, uh, somebody's got to taste that right there. So it's kind of a real-time job, or it was either Nehemiah or someone trusted from Nehemiah's staff, but... Uh, we know, like the head cupbearer, those guys were typically wise. They had exceptional social skills because they had to be in the presence of high-level leaders. They had to conduct themselves well. They needed to offer counsel on on matters of state, on any situation uh, when asked. Oftentimes, they were. They were trusted. They were trusted oftentimes by their king. They served more than their own families were because a lot of these uh, these monarchs, their families were t- trying to kill them to take their place. And so Nehemiah was tighter most likely with the king than his own, his own family, his own kids, his own uh, brothers and sisters, we think. So not only was uh, he uh, a cupbearer, but he was also a protector at heart. This was, uh, this was the job of a cupbearer. In order to assassinate the king, man, you had to get through Nehemiah. He would do anything to shield the king or the emperor from danger, injury, or death. This this takes a certain type of a mindset. Some of our popular movies bring this into play, uh, movies like The Bodyguard or whatever, or where there's a bodyguard. So so there's like a bodyguard mentality. And Nehemiah was, was at his core a protector, which I think explains why he cared so deeply about Jerusalem being unprotected by its broken walls. Because this kind of fit and went into alignment with what his, what his thinking was, his ethos was. And so he was a protector. He was a part bodyguard, part cabinet member, part therapist, part bro, part daddy, part big brother. Whatever the king needed, uh, this is who he was. Now speaking of this, and this is I think is interesting. It goes without saying your next fill-in is he was not in charge. He had little organizational authority despite being so uh, loyal, but he was still, guys, able to accomplish so much being buried in the org chart within the structure that he was in. I think this is interesting because uh, we can draw some application. If you've ever read the book, Leading from the Second Chair, or have heard the concept of second chair leadership, third chair leadership, there's this idea that people can make a great impact In their organizations, in their roles, in their gifts, without having the title of CEO or boss or owner. And for most of us in this room, we're not those that we're not the CEO. We're not the boss. There's a boss ahead of us or, or a boss's boss or a boss's 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 boss, however you are and, and big your organization is. And yet that doesn't mean that you can't do great things. Because Nehemiah is an example of this, and we see this in Scripture. Now, not only was he not in charge, he was also not a pastor or a priest. Nehemiah is what we call a marketplace leader, not a vocational minister. And I think this is key to understand because, again, pulling out and just applying this for a second, there's this pernicious and untrue idea that's floating around, especially the church at large, and the, the lie is this, that in order to do great things for God, you have to be in professional ministry to do so. And so many Christians I know, they're like, they, they maybe they don't actually say this out loud, but internally they're they're asking themselves, hey, what could I really do for God? I don't have a Bible degree. I don't have a seminary degree. I don't draw a paycheck from the church. I'm not in ministry. Uh, I don't have the title of pastor. And guys, that is totally unbiblical because the Lord can use Uh, a person who's willing regardless of their vocational background including things for God things that impact the kingdom and so we draw example from Nehemiah he's a case study and how a business person that's not in ministry not a priest not a pastor not a worship leader not pulling a paycheck from the church can impact life can impact others for the kingdom of God so study him closely if you are not in ministry in fact who is not in vocational ministry raise your hand then this book is your jam, okay? Uh, so see what he does and draw encouragement. And then finally, this characteristic I think is, is critical to understanding the book is he had a breakable heart. He wasn't, well, let me just say, I picture Persian cut bears as being pretty stoic people. I mean, every bodyguard type guy I've ever met is, is pretty like unflappable, And I suppose you want your surgeons, you want your airline pilots, and you want your bodyguards to be very non-emotional, right? (laughs) He was probably pretty stoic most of the time. But on the inside, we see, behind the curtain, he had a heart that he cared. His heart broke. He cared about things, actually, he cared about something that wasn't really impacting him day to day. I mean, Jerusalem was a long ways away, 900 miles, 1,000 miles away, 800 miles. But here's the thing, his heart broke over the suffering of others. He heard about the suffering of others and it was the Jews back in Jerusalem and he sat down and he cried. He wept and he mourned, not just in the moment, it says for days. Compassion, caring, This is an attribute of Nehemiah, and it is also an attribute of a godly and good leader. So we ask ourselves this question, what breaks my heart? You know, for me, one thing that really breaks my heart is when I consider so many people don't know Jesus. They're totally disconnected from their creator. They have no idea what it means to commune with God, to be a friend of God to have the Lord's presence in your life, walking with you hand in hand through thick and thin, through good times and bad times. I, I, I can't imagine living life that way. And there's so many people, especially in a state like Oregon, where most people don't go to church. Most people are secular. Most people uh, don't even think about the Lord. And that just breaks my heart. And guys, this is why I preach the gospel so regularly from this pulpit. I do this passionately. I spend time on trying to articulate it. And maybe you're like, oh, I've never noticed that before. Well, I'm sorry. I try. Uh <laughs> <laughs> But it's, it's because my heart breaks for this. And not only because I need to do it, it's my job as a gospel communicator. I want to. And so uh, that's something. Also, on a practical level, sort of my heart breaks for, for Mexico. I love Mexico. I love the people of Mexico. I love the culture of Mexico. Mexico. And my heart breaks for Mexico, especially when I visit and I go to not just the tourist parts. The tourist parts are super nice. That's mostly where the Americans hang out, Cabo and I don't know, those other towns or whatever. And, um, and yet when you go into the neighborhoods and the colonias, you see so much, so much poverty and you see, um, you see that, the brokenness. You know, I... I remember when we went to TJ, Tijuana, which is right across the border. You guys know we went years ago. It was one of my first house building trips and we're on this this hill in TJ and, and Aiden and I, my son, we're on this roof. We're on a roof in TJ and it's the summer and it's like 107 degrees and we're putting this roof on and it's really hot and I remember standing up and I could see this, I could see a little bit because of the visibility and, and I saw obviously the neighborhood, the Colonia, and it was a shanty town. It was just like so much poverty. And then you could see right over the fence and you can see into beautiful southern San Diego and you can see the beaches and you can even see some of the nice neighborhoods. And it's like, there's such a dichotomy there. And I'm not trying to get political. I, I'm not trying to get into the like, well, here's why this happened, Billy, and blah, blah, blah. What I am is just in this moment, I'm just thinking this is broken and it's not right. And so my heart breaks for this. And and the breaking of the heart over the suffering of others is what motivates us to make a change. It's what motivates us to be used by God to do things that we normally wouldn't. And this is what we see in Nehemiah. So that's the man. And we're going to meet more of him later and learn more about his character as we get into this. Uh, Just a bit bit of a summary. Now I want to to just talk to you about the book of Nehemiah and to help orient you where we're headed the the next three months. So there's three key words to fill in, and the words are rebuild, revive, and restore. These are the three words that summarize the three major sections of this book, 13 chapters, rebuild, revive, restore. First, rebuild. Nehemiah's job was initially to rebuild the broken walls of Jerusalem, which we just read about. Now, in the ancient world, A city's walls were very important. We don't have that today. But the walls of a city back then were vital for its health and its protection. Broken walls meant that the people living in the city were weak and vulnerable to attack, thus they could not flourish and grow and have families. Uh, they were constantly um, you know, fighting off uh, attackers. And in Nehemiah's day specifically, God's people in and around Jerusalem were continually being harassed by their oppressive neighbors, by their enemies. They were open to attack because the wall was broken and the gates were burned out. And so that needed to get fixed. The walls needed rebuilding and the gates needed to be rehung and this was by the way a huge undertaking. Think ancient times, we didn't have, you know, all the modern conveniences that we do today. So this process which was backbreaking, it comprises the first 7 chapters of the book. Spoiler alert. BTW, if you've never read this, Nehemiah did get it done. He rebuilt the wall. A key verse in this section is found in chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. We're just going to skip ahead for just a second. Here's what it says So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. Turn to your neighbor and say, 52 days. It's a ridiculously short amount of time. And then when all our enemies who were around heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and they fell greatly in their own esteem. They thought they were real great, and they, were, they thought they were all that and a stick of butter, uh, but they were just bullies. They were just stupid bullies, and now the wall is built, and now they fell greatly in their own esteem. That's good, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. This is an incredible achievement. Without cranes and without cats and power tools, 52 days. 52 days. Obviously, they did not have to apply for building permits with the city of Jerusalem, or the thing would still be unfinished, I'm sure. Now, what blows my mind is that this this wall, at least part of it, is still standing today. Here's a picture of it. You can go to Jerusalem. This is actually, it was verified in 2007 by archaeologists from Hebrew University in Jerusalem to be a remnant of the wall of Nehemiah and his group. I've got to see this one time. Uh, It's truly incredible. I'm not telling you that I took a little piece of it home and it's in my office. Uh, It's illegal. You'd never do that. (laughs) Mm. By the way, we are offering, we hope, at least we're building an interest list for an Israel trip we think next year and this is a cool thing. We, I think Redeemers has done this a couple of times. We actually had one uh, planned in 2020, I believe. Uh, was it 2020 or 2021? We had to cancel it because of, I'm not even gonna say the word. Uh, and so I know travel is different, but we're gonna put together uh, an interest list. And if we are able to go and you are able to go, we are gonna go there for sure, for shizzle. And you're gonna get to see this. Uh, once again, the Bible... Oh my goodness, I keep saying this. It's like I'm a broken record. The Bible is not a bunch of fictional, made-up, fairy-tale stories pulled from the air like many skeptics assert. I read a comment on a thread actually yesterday that a dude said that Disneyland and the Bible are both made up and they're the same, and I wanted to reach through the internet and just pop him in the face, but I didn't (laughs) because I'm a pastor, so I prayed for him. So, (laughs) rather... What we have in the scripture is myriads and mountains and just piles of scientifically verified artifacts and historical hard evidence like this wall that tells us what the Bible said happened actually happened in human history. Okay, that's chapters one through seven. Chapters eight through 10, Nehemiah uh, is tasked with helping revive spiritual passion for God. And this is done with Ezra. The Jewish people... Needed revitalization spiritually because they had become super discouraged and they had become disillusioned and dry and cracked and dead spiritually. Many of the Israelites around Jerusalem had walked away from the Lord. Spiritual mononucleosis had set in. There was hardly anybody genuinely worshiping. There was no passion. There was no fire for God. People were neglecting the temple. They were living like they didn't know the Lord. So not only did Nehemiah come to fix physical brokenness, God raises this man up and some other leaders to help fix spiritual brokenness. God cares about both. God cares about our physical needs, the wall, and he cares about our spiritual needs, the soul. And this is why the Lord raises up his kids in varieties of professions. He raises, up, he raises up builders and architects and, and doctors and medical professionals to help and many, many other types of jobs to help people to keep us safe physically, to, to, to keep us healthy, to help keep our bodies protected. And this is also why God raises up some pastors and other church leaders to help keep our souls in good health. Now, by the way, thank God for our medical professionals around the Roseburg area, and thank God for our godly medical professionals, which we have some here in our church that worship and serve, and they help us with the physical brokenness, and I just want to say we're launching a brand new ministry uh, in the medical community here at Redeemers. It's called Side by Side, and this is a ministry for wives of medical professionals of all kinds to help support those families and provide them with love and care and Bible study and prayer and so that we can reach um, a a community that many times is not necessarily coming to church, but this is part outreach, part pastoral care. So if you know someone who is in the medical field at all and that lives around here, uh, please help us spread the word that Side by Side is happening. Just another great ministry. I want to thank our team for that. Uh, So that's going on. Now, in this section, though, in section, uh, this, these chapters, spiritual needs are in view. The question then is why were they in such need of a spiritual recharge? Why did they get so dry, God's people, in the first place? And in order to answer that, I need to just fire hose you with some history. Can I do that for just a minute? Actually, five minutes or so. I'm gonna talk super fast. So Whether you said yes or not, I was gonna do it. So thank you, <laughs> whoever said that. There's a timeline, let's dig into it. Before the timeline, Israel had been a strong and spiritually healthy nation under King David, remember? In around 1000 BC, his son Solomon takes over. That revival continues to happen, but after Solomon's death, the kingdom was divided into two parts, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was led by a bunch of deadbeat kings from the very beginning. And so for hundreds of years, they just backslid and they served idols and they made sacrifices to false gods. And so the Lord eventually um, sent the Assyrians in 722. We talked about this last year during Yobel. The Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom in 722. But the southern kingdom, Judah, survived. They survived a little bit longer. A succession, though, that wasn't that much better of their leadership. They had 20 kings that ruled Judah, or the southern kingdom. The capital was Jerusalem. But the problem of these 20 kings was some of them, most of them, were also backsliders. They were evil. They were disobedient. They were unfaithful to God. So after centuries of this, God brings discipline to Judah in the form of the Babylonians. The Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar and his armies, they, they conquered Jerusalem in 586 B.C. This was a bad year for Jerusalem 586 was because not only did they destroy the city but they destroyed the first temple they destroyed Solomon's temple they just nothing left of that great grandiose place and they ripped down the city walls and they burned the gates, basically making the city uninhabitable. And then per Babylonian doctrine, they also pulled out almost all of the surviving Israelites and repopulated them elsewhere into other parts of the Babylonian Empire. The Jews then were now in exile. Everybody say exile. Exile. The Bible narrative then continues, and world history also tells us that the Persian Empire came into power. Thus, there was major regime change. That's your fill-in in in your uh, notes. It came in the form of King Cyrus, the Medo-Persian king who toppled the Babylonians, and then Cyrus promptly uh, reverses the policy of the former leadership and grants Jews freedom to return to their homeland and rebuild the temple. You can study this very royal decree on an ancient artifact called the Cyrus Cylinder, which is housed at the British Museum in London. This is an actual artifact. Here's a picture of it. This little clay cin- cylinder, you can't really read, but all those little lines are script that basically tell Cyrus's uh, decree that allows all of the people who were re- repopulated uh, under the Babylonian empire, stolen from their homes. They could all go back and repatriate their former homeland. And this included the Jews of which we're now uh, in view. So think of this as an OG text message box. Like it it was how they texted back then. And also, duh, more evidence. Okay, enough said, I already said about that. So the Jews in Babylon, now Persia, begin migrating back to Israel, back to their homeland, and this happens in three major waves, or we'll call them three migrations. That's your next fill-in. The first migration happened... In 538 BC to about 515 BC was led by a Jewish leader named Zerubbabel. This is found in Ezra chapter 2 and the book of Haggai. Zerubbabel was a descendant of King David. He's listed in the genealogies in the gospels. He not only leads the first wave back, but he also rebuilds the temple and that takes a while, but he gets it done. The second migration actually happens much later in 458 BC led by Ezra, the priest who is in charge of restoring proper temple worship. That was his job. And lastly, the third migration is led by Nehemiah a few years after Ezra. Ezra is still alive. Ezra is waiting for him. Ezra and Nehemiah are partners once they get there. By the way, nobody leads alone. And so uh, with all three migra- migrations, we think it was about 50,000 people over about a 100-year period, Jews that came back into uh, Jerusalem area, into uh, the Holy Land. Now, in general, we call this Second Temple Judaism. This is what this period of of time is called. Anybody heard that uh, word before, that phrase? You can Google this. And it covers roughly a period from the Book of Ezra, that is the Jewish exiles returning from Babylon, from Persia, and then extending all the way into the New Testament times until the Second Temple itself was destroyed by the Romans who sacked Jerusalem in AD seventy. The only part of that second temple that is standing is none of it. But what we have is an outer courtyard wall, which we call the western wall. This is not part of the second temple. It's part of the, the platform that housed it. The, 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 the second temple would have just just been beyond that wall. Basically, we have more of Nehemiah's wall than the second temple. Because we don't need a temple anymore. We have Jesus, right? We're not made clean by sacrifices on an altar in a building for our sin. We're made clean by his sacrifice, that is Christ's sacrifice on the cross. He shed his blood and broke his body, was buried in a grave, and then rose three days later. His blood covers our sin and gives us justification by faith. His blood gives us redemption and forgiveness and new birth and regeneration and sanctification and eventually glorification. And by the way, also we don't need to tell Because you and me, Christians, we have the spirit that lives inside of us. We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay, a ton of... Oh, you're... Yes. (laughs) A ton of history happens uh, that I just said. Uh, But I think it's important to go over because it does help us understand context of what is happening in our book now. Back to Nehemiah. The question is, why were the people so discouraged? Why did they need revitalization And it's simply this. Because nothing was as good as it was before. Mm. Two snaps. (laughs) It's just true, isn't it? Very little is. Now, in this case, the temple, the second temple, it wasn't as nice. In fact, in the book of Haggai, after Zerubbabel builds the temple, Haggai prophesies and 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 the people are wailing. After the temple, they're they're mourning. It's just, oh, it's not as good as it was. It's a shadow of what it once was. And 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 it's like it's like that's just life, right? Uh, not only that, but the city is still jacked up. I mean, imagine going to work every day and it's just a bunch of rubble and burned out stuff and and the wall is busted, buildings broken down. People were getting discouraged just seeing that every day, a reminder of once of what once was and now no longer is. All these once hopeful returnees, oh, we're going back, we're going home, we're gonna, we're gonna risk and we're gonna travel and we're gonna, God's gonna do great things. And now all of this hope is just now discouragement because nothing's gonna change. The brokenness was just too much. And so God's people stopped believing, they stopped trusting, they also stopped reading their Bibles, they stopped uh, reading God's word publicly, and they also stopped giving to the temple and they stopped following the laws in Leviticus. And this is in Haggai, this is in Malachi, this is in Ezra, this is in Nehemiah. These books describe this discouragement dynamic. And so they needed a revival. They needed a recharge because if all you do guys is sit in the brokenness and the rubble of your life and reminisce about how great the good old days were, then yes, you are going to become spiritually depleted. You're going to become dry. And this is true of any person. You're going to need revival. You're going to need a spiritual recharge. Now, perhaps today you're, you're coming to church. I'm glad you're here. Bring some friends next week. We got a couple empty seats right up here. But you're discouraged, and you're feeling cracked, and 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 you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. But at least one main one is because there's. There's just brokenness in your life and you're sitting in the rubble as it were and you're feeling like the best days are in the past and you don't feel like you have a future and you feel like the choices that you've made and the choices others made on your behalf that you were powerless to change, they are defining your future and it's not a good future and you're discouraged and so I'm here to tell you that even though it may feel like the best days are in the past, that is not true my friend because in Jesus your best days are ahead of you. Absolutely 100% true. Haggai, the book of Haggai says the latter. He's encouraging. Remember all those people are wailing that the second temple is not as good and they're just moaning and crying and complaining. And Haggai comes up and says, guys, no, the latter will be greater than the former. Meaning your best days are not behind you. They're ahead of you. And in Christ, this is true, and it's only in Christ, by the way. And let me just be very clear. This is not a promise that all your your jacked up stuff is going to go away next week and your debt's going to be gone and your cancer's going to be healed and your relationships are going to be just automatically, magically restored. That's not the promise. The promise is... That in the future, when we meet Jesus face to face, all the suffering and the jacked up stuff that we've had that has hit us our whole life will melt away in his glory, in its beauty, in the light of heaven. And thus, I can say emphatically that the best days in Jesus of your life are ahead of you. Woo-hoo! And so revitalization happens in the book of Nehemiah. This is again chapters eight through ten. And the key verse is in Nehemiah 8 and it's in verses 1 through 4 and I have run out of time. So we're not going to read this. And we're also not going to go over the third section, which is restore. We will speak on that in a later point in the series. But let me just, can I just close? I'm famous for my really expertly uh, knitted together closings here. (laughs) Can I just have you sit with this question for just this week, talk about it at lunch, Pray about this. Like legit do this, please. What brokenness is God calling you to rebuild or revive or restore? You know, it's not just for these super duper heroes in the Bible, but this is the calling of God on each one of our lives. You know, sometimes our own personal brokenness is so much that we can't think or even consider helping someone else's. Can I just say that God's got more for you and that he wants to use you and work through you to help another person, to help a people, to help a group, to see their brokenness fixed, at least to a degree, you can be a part of that. That is part of your calling in God and Jesus. And so the question is, well, there's brokenness all around. Like, Which one are you called to to be a part of, the solution of? I want you to think about that. I want you to pray about that. Can you do that?